Okay, if you want to get out your notes, we will be finishing up the Sermon on the Mount this morning. Now, uh, just for continuity's sake, I gave you last time's notes and this time's notes because it kind of goes together. So um, we'll be on the back, uh, not the front, so you don't have to worry that that's too much for me to say and you'll never get to lunch. I'm only doing the back. If you were here two weeks ago, you heard the front. If you missed that, you can go online and hear it. Um, anyway, you'll have the notes either way. So, uh, we just by way of review, <coughs> finishing up the Sermon on the Mount, we've talked, we keep going back to these eight values, the Beatitudes that Jesus stressed and built on through the entire Sermon on the Mount. We talked about the five enemies of those eight values that are internal. We talked about the five practices that cultivate those eight values. <coughs> we talked about the one demonic attack that all of us experience, uh, anxiety, worry, fear. We started two weeks ago talking about the five people guidelines because even though we battle not against flesh and blood but against principalities and powers, principalities and powers seem to use people. So people are usually the problem. And so we're talking about rules to uh, do well with people because the church is full of, you know, people. Can't avoid them. Now, uh, we covered last week, don't judge people. Pretty straightforward. We covered prayer, and I remind you, it was in the context of praying for us to have the grace, to have the Sermon on the Mount lifestyle, to be able to interact with people who can, oddly enough, sometimes be annoying and still be Jesus-like towards them. That was the focus of that prayer. And then third, we talked about fearing God. Uh, not being influenced by the crowd to compromise, uh, taking the narrow path, not being turned away for the sake of peace and getting along, being even willing to suffer ridicule uh, to stay on the narrow path and uh, the Sermon on the Mount path. You guys remember all that? So we'll pick it up with number four and five on the five people rules. Um, so we're on the back of your notes, and we're in, if you want to turn your Bibles... We're in um, Matthew chapter 7. We're going to do 15, verse 15 through the end of the chapter. Now, if you want an alternate title, a good title for this message this morning would be How to Pick a Church. In case you're here and you're thinking, yeah, I don't know about this guy. Uh, I'm going to help you out, tell you how to pick a church. All right? So number four. I'm going to call rules for people. Rule number four, know your leaders, all right? Now, uh, I'm going to read this to you, and then I'm going to come back and talk about it a little bit. He says, beware of false prophets. And just so you know, I'm going to talk a little bit about false prophets, emphasis on prophets, but I'm mostly going to talk about leaders in general, and I'll explain why in a minute. But we're not just talking about false prophets. We're talking about leaders in general. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. 
Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Ouch. Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. All right. Now, what he's talking about here, I believe, <clears throat> isn't just prophecy, but being aware of false or worldly guidance. Be aware of leaders that look like they might be good, but their guidance for you is false or is worldly. Now, again, I'm going to go back and forth on the prophetic thing. Uh, and I really kind of labored over this because it would be easy to do a whole teaching on the prophetic here, and I'm going to try not to do that. But we need to see how uh, the prophetic and leadership mix because I think, I'll just say it this way, I love the prophetic. Um, I am, uh, um, you know, we all have different gifts. I have some prophetic gifting. I've, I've been used to prophesy. I've prophesied accurately. I have blown it and prophesied badly. Uh, I've done both. Um, yeah. Uh, and anyway, uh, I love prophecy. I see the value of prophecy in the church. I want, uh, I say with Moses, oh, that all God's people were prophets. But I totally get when Paul says don't despise prophecy. I get why people hate prophecy. Uh, because it's the easiest thing to fake. If you want to look spiritual, you can just start prophesying. Say, throw in a few thus say at the Lord's so and no one can question you. And you just, you look awesome, right? As long as you don't, as long as you just say vague things that no one can pin you down on. Am I being too harsh? All right. And so we got to get a handle on this. All this to say, I love the prophetic, but I believe in general uh, his church is kind of at an adolescent level of maturity with the prophetic. We, we need to mature, okay? And so I'm hoping this is going to help us some with that. So I want you to keep in mind uh, their history. He's saying beware of false prophets. Now, they have been reading all their lives. This is the Jews that Jesus is talking to. They've been reading Isaiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and the minor prophets, as long as, along with Moses and the Pentateuch and the Psalms and all that stuff. So they have a grid for prophetic leadership, for national prophetic leadership. Keep in mind, they're looking for the Messiah who Moses told them, I will raise up a prophet like me. So they're looking for the Messiah, the prophet, the guy who's going to lead our nation out of bondage. This is their mindset. They have not had a true prophetic voice for 400 years. The last prophet they had was Malachi, and that was 400 years ago. So they're desperate for prophetic leadership. They've had some false messiahs. They've had some false leaders, but they haven't had anything anybody was writing down like they did with Ezekiel and Isaiah and those guys for 400 years. So into this mindset, Jesus says, be careful about false prophets. Because, as you recall, this whole Sermon on the Mount is changing the paradigm from an Old Testament outward focus to a New Testament inward focus. Have you, you remember me saying that pretty much every time we've taught on this, right? And so this is going to be another example of that. And so what I want you to see here is he's not saying um, beware of false prophets from the standpoint of he's concerned about accurate information like uh, beware if you listen to the wrong guy, you won't know who to vote for uh, this election, or you won't know, you know where to put your money for your retirement. 
because, you know, you got to listen to the prophetic guys. That's not what he's talking about. And, of course, that's ridiculous anyway, right? We wouldn't just. All right. Just give that a minute to percolate. All right. He's not concerned about guys giving us accurate information for the future. He's concerned about a compromising influence from a charismatic or prophetic leader. Let me give you the example I used. This is in Revelation chapter 2, verse 20. This is the seven churches. This is, in particular, is Thyatira. And Jesus, of course, has walked among the lampstands, and he's talking to churches. He's telling them what he likes and what he doesn't like and what they should improve if he doesn't want, if they don't want their lampstand removed. And in Thyatira, in Revelation chapter 2, verse 20, he says this, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel. Now, I don't know if that was her name. If it was, her parents blew it hardcore right from the start. Uh, or if that was metaphorical, probably metaphorical. <clears throat> I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess, right? So she's established herself as a prophetess. To do what? Teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat things sacrificed to idols. So is the concern that her information is bad? No, the concern is that she's using whatever prophetic gifting she has to teach God's people to compromise. She's leading them into compromise. In fact, I will bet you, I don't know, I'll have to wait till I get to heaven, I'll ask somebody and find out. I'll find somebody that went to the church at Thyatira. <laughs> Say, tell me about this Jezebel chick. Uh, you know, what was she like? I'll bet you she had some prophetic gifting. I bet you she was accurate. I bet you she was impressive sometimes with her because just because you have prophetic gifting doesn't mean you can't use it the wrong way, like any other gifting, right? So I bet she was. In fact, I bet she, she kind of started out uh, prophesying some good stuff and ended up realizing, oh, I can get people to follow me doing this. I can use this to gain a following. I can use this to turn things my way. It ended up having a bad heart. And leading people astray. And so uh, what I want you to see here is that we're concerned with worldly guidance, with false guidance, with leaders that look good, but or even maybe you're gifted, genuinely gifted from God, but end up leading people astray. That's what he's warning us about. And here's the warning. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. Now, that's outward, Right? But inwardly, they are ravenous wolves. Inward is the heart. You keep seeing it all through this Sermon on the Mount, the outward compared to the inward. And so he's saying they look like you. They look like a sheep. They look like a Christian. They say the right things. They do the right things. But in their hearts, they're selfish. And here's what's going on. The difference between a sheep and a ravenous wolf, a sheep wants to hang out with the other sheep because he likes sheep. A ravenous wolf wants to hang out with the other sheep because he likes sheep in a different way. Right? He wants to eat the sheep. The sheep are for him, not for them. In other words, the ravenous wolf isn't there to help the sheep. 
<clears throat> the ravenous wolf is there to feed on the sheep. The sheep are there for the wolf, right? And so you're going to get, what he's saying is beware of leaders who are basically selfish, who are leading for what they get out of it, who are leading for the acclaim or the money or the, uh, or the influence or the ability to, like Jezebel, shape a people to compromise and, and you know, or leading because uh, they're bound in the fear of man and, they, and they, they have to have the appeal and the applause of people. There's all kinds of bad motives, bad heart motives for leading. But here's the problem. These sheep or these wolves look like sheep outwardly, don't they? How do you know? How are you going to tell the difference? Yeah, he tells us. We have to look at their hearts, right? We have to evaluate the fruit. And so he goes on and he says, you'll know them by their fruit. And so I want to submit to you that fruit is... uh, along the lines of these eight values that we've been looking at, these Beatitudes. Are they exhibiting fruit of a life spent with Jesus? Right? Fruit of the Spirit, all those things. All right? So uh, here's what I want you to see, and this is where we start getting into kind of missing this with prophecy. Again, we're generally talking about leaders that are, that are bearing fruit, not just that are impressive outwardly. But specifically now, let's look at it a little bit from the standpoint of prophetic and false prophets. Um, In Deuteronomy 18, in the Old Testament, how did you evaluate a prophet? Anybody remember? Accuracy. Accuracy. Totally on accuracy. Prophet said it, and it happens, he's a prophet. And if he says it and it doesn't happen, uh, don't be afraid of him. You can take him out and throw rocks at him. Right? That's the Old Testament. Right? Funny... Uh, we kind of want to still do that. We just throw our rocks verbally, don't we? Is that still in play? How will we know a false prophet? By their accuracy? What did it say? By their fruit. Jesus just changed it. He just said, I don't care whether or not they're accurate. I want you to look at their heart. Do you catch that? Guys, we got to get these things because we're going to miss the entire concept of prophetic ministry if we don't understand stuff like this. It's really not about accuracy. It's about heart. Now, do we want accuracy? Absolutely. But uh, I'm not that worried uh, because I get to evaluate myself because I have the Spirit of God. Uh, I don't have to just go, well, that was Isaiah. I guess I got to do it. Because you know what? There aren't any Isaiahs running around right now that I know of. Okay, anyway, we evaluate by fruit no longer <clears throat> by accuracy. Now, here's what that means. If I'm going to evaluate you by fruit to decide if you're a real prophet or a false prophet or a real leader or a false leader, I'm going to have to be able to observe you, aren't I? So, if... Anyone, I know no one in here has done this or would ever do this, but, you know, those other guys. If anybody is reading an article online and you got two quotes taken out of context in, in one story and you've concluded that guy's a false prophet, I want to submit to you that that probably doesn't qualify as observing whether or not there's fruit. All right? To observe... Whether or not there's fruit, you have to, you have to 
you know, if the guy's around, you're going to have to spend some time with him. If he's not around, you probably have to listen to a few of his teachings and read a couple of his books, not uh, just decide by someone else's opinion that this guy's right or wrong. And not throw out the baby with the bathwater because he disagrees on uh, some doctrinal issue with you. I, some of my favorite teachers, uh, at least two of them, uh, have terrible eschatology, but they're awesome on everything else. All right? So, uh, you know, we can argue about eschatology when we're in heaven because we'll both be there. Because neither of us are false prophets. We just differ on that. You understand what I'm saying? We got to get off this Old Testament mindset on this. And by the way, <clears throat> the only reason for evaluating uh, whether someone is a leader you can trust is for personal application. You need to evaluate whether or not you're going to read this guy's book, listen to this guy's teaching, go to this guy's church, uh, give money to this guy's ministry, that kind of stuff. There is no reason you have to, after your evaluation, label that guy. Certainly no reason you have to do it publicly. Now, maybe you got friends and they're listening to somebody who's really weird and you go, hey, maybe don't listen to that guy, here's why. But you don't need to make a web page on why that guy's a false prophet, right? You understand where I'm going? Okay? So it's just for you. Guys, this should be freeing. I don't have to, uh, none of us have the ministry, I guarantee this, I virtually guarantee this as your pastor, none of you in this room are called to the ministry of vetting prophets in America. And telling us all which ones are good ones and which ones are false ones. All you have to do, and this should be freeing, is determine who you want to listen to. And isn't it awesome that you get to look at the fruit and determine who you want to listen to? You can determine right now you don't want to listen to me. And you have that right before God. I can't make you. All right? I think that's awesome. And it puts some responsibility on us, doesn't it? This gets into the priesthood of the believer type thing. So uh, let's evaluate. We want to evaluate. We absolutely want to evaluate leaders and decide if we want to follow them. Let's not be so quick to label uh, people, right? All right. Now, here's where uh, it gets interesting. <clears throat> The, uh, the New Testament changed the way we should look at prophecy. The problem is we have books and books and books of example of Old Testament prophecy. In the New Testament, we have a handful. Agabus prophesies a couple times in Acts. There's a couple of prophetic things. We know there's prophets. They tell us there's prophets, but we aren't seeing them prophesy. We have this abundance of Old Testament and a little bit of New Testament and this is probably why we don't do it as well as we should. Let me, uh, I've really uh, wrestled with how to best explain this to you. And so I'm going to go with it this way. What changed in the New Testament is the entire design of leadership. In the Old Testament, you had the priesthood, which was the Levites, and you had prophets that spoke to nations. And if you didn't listen to those prophets, you ended up in captivity in Babylon. I mean, it was important where bad things happened, right? That is not what we have in the New Testament. Listen to me, guys. we got to get this. This is important. In the New Testament, 
we have the local church. You did not have that in the Old Testament. You did not have the local church. You didn't have the church in this city and the church in that city. You had uh, Israel, and you had the temple, and you had, you know, Jeremiah was the prophet to Jerusalem or to um, Judea, or Isaiah was the prophet to Israel, and that was it. We don't have a prophet to Florida or a prophet to America or a prophet to Brevard County right now, do we? Anybody name them? No. We aren't led this way anymore. The New Testament church is led as a local church full of, here we go, spirit-led individuals. Local church full of spirit-led individuals. Can you see any way the Old Testament prophetic model works with that? It doesn't. It just doesn't. The Old Testament prophetic model, one guy telling everybody what to do, doesn't work with the local church and spirit-led individuals. I don't even tell you guys what to do, and we're just one church. I mean, I tell you what to do from the Bible. I don't tell you, you know, what to do with your 501K or who you vote for, right? 401K, keep doing that. So in the local church, here's what leadership looks like. We have the fivefold ministry, apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher. Uh, prophets in there, but they work together as a team to bring the heart of God to ministry. Here's something interesting, uh, because there is a tendency to, uh, in the church to kind of exalt the prophetic gifting, and that's why you've got to watch out for false prophets. Um, in Corinthians, they even give us an order. First, what? Anybody know? Apostles, then prophets. They aren't even first in the New Testament. Any apostles in the Old Testament? No. It's different, guys. Things have changed. We've got to change the way we think based on what God has done. He's, done. He's shifted everything from this outward, here's what you do, most of the prophecy in the Old Testament was prophets calling people back to God, and it had to do with tearing down idols and Ashtaroth poles and, and stuff like that. Now it's heart issues. And so what we have is the fivefold ministry. We have churches that are led by elders, not the prophetic. Let me say that again. We have churches that are led by elders, not the prophetic. Now, it is to be hoped, it is definitely to be hoped that there's some prophetic in the mix of those elders, but there's also should be some pastoral, some teaching, some evangelists, some of all of it, right? That's how the church is led. And so we've got to get this because if we don't, uh, we will try, we'll, we'll, we'll end up trying to overlay an Old Testament prophetic model on the New Testament church, and it doesn't work. And you end up, you know, listening to your pastor and then listening to this guy and then listening to that guy, and uh, it just gets, it can get crazy. Um, let me, let me, I was talking to Rachel and Gary, and uh, I, I said, uh, you know, I'm trying to think. I'm really trying to think. There have been, uh, 
impactful personal prophecies in my life. People have prophesied to me, and it was impactful. It actually helped me to choose a direction to go. And they both said, yeah, me too. I said, I can't think of a single, like, big national prophecy that if I hadn't heard it would have affected my life. Can you? And they both went, no, I really can't. Can you? Maybe we're looking at this wrong. So, let's see if we can look at it right. The purpose of prophecy, in my opinion, has always been alignment with God. Simply that. The shortest, concise definition of the purpose of prophecy is to align with God. In the Old Testament, we have the example of Elijah on Mount Carmel calling down fire from heaven and saying, if God's God, serve him. If Baal's God, serve him. Pick one now, right? Align with God. If you look in the minor prophets, who most of them prophesied during or after the captivity, you see this phrase come up again and again, return to God, return to God, return to God. Prophetic is supposed to be a voice calling people back to center. Here's the difference. In the Old Testament, that was, calling again, calling people back to, uh, you know, going to the feast at Jerusalem, going to the temple, following the, the Bible, following the Old Testament, doing all that stuff, doing all the outward stuff. What changed in the New Testament is now God has written his law in our hearts. We're all priests and kings to our God. We're all supposed to be spirit-led individuals joined together. God's building us together into a spiritual house, a dwelling place of God in the spirit, the local church, local churches coming together into the big church, all that. And so what has happened is it's gone from uh, alignment as a group to personal or heart alignments. And here's the thing. Your heart alignment might look different than mine because God has given us all giftings and callings. It's not like we all just do the same thing now and show up at Jerusalem three times a year. We have different giftings and callings. And so God has to align each of our hearts according to our gifting and calling. And that, I believe, is primarily what the prophetic is about. I <clears throat> figure 1 Corinthians 14.3 it's probably the most concise biblical definition of New Testament prophecy. It's, it's very simple. Paul says, he who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. So what he's saying is that the purpose of prophesy, prophecy is to build up and encourage and comfort people. Right? And so we have to keep that in mind. And again, uh, it's really easy to think of the big picture and the big prophets and all that stuff. And, and I, I'm not saying we don't have those. There are some guys who I think prophesy on that level, who have kind of national level prophecy. I don't think there's near as many as we think they are. Uh, I think there's way more talking uh, that uh, isn't necessarily God. Or is maybe God, but not God for the nation, God for you and the guy next to you, that kind of thing. And so what I want us to see as we look at this verse is he's primarily talking about talking to men, talking to people, encouraging people. My observation has been this. Most of the prophecy that I have seen and been impressed with is tailored individual prophecy. 
by far, and I've seen a lot, by far, even the big guys. Uh, I watched, I remember we were at a meeting, I watched Paul Kane, uh, who is impressive, was, he's really prophetic now because he actually lives in heaven, but um, uh, he came in with three by five cards, and he's, he's just going through them. There's someone here, and he tells you that the couple's name and where they're from and maybe the numbers on their mailbox and they stand up and then he tells them something. And we're going, well, that's pretty good. Right? I've seen guys like that. But you know at the end of the day what they end up doing? He ended up just standing there in front of all of us and encouraging that couple individually. The whole night he did that. He went up through all those three by five cards. You know what wasn't on any of those three by five cards? A word for America. A word for the church there. So many times... Uh, people get up and give a, a broad, this is what God's doing in America. This is God. I, even just at Church in the Rock, here's what God's going to do. You know, everyone's going to experience this this week. I, I'm going, no, they're not. Some of them are. Some of them are going to experience something different. There's different people here. God's doing, the Spirit's doing different things with them. You understand where I'm going? Again, I love the prophetic. I just want us to be mature in how we apply it. Some of you, I don't know, uh, you know, God may give you a, a word that's to be for a lot of people. And there are prophets that get that. But I'm telling you, I want you, I really want a church that prophesies. And so I want you to understand that most of the time, it's God giving you something for the people around you to encourage them in their individual tailored need at the moment. Uh, most of the time, that's the kind of prophetic stuff I get. And most of the time, as what I see is the kind of prophetic stuff that people get that is effective. Uh, how many of you have had that same experience? All right. And so all that to say, yeah, we want to, uh, I think we need to watch our leaders. I think we need to, uh, you know, know our leaders, be wary of false violence, be aware of false prophets, that kind of thing. But I really want us to not get too hung up on the big words. I think we spend, I, I, I listen to them, I pray about them sometimes, and then I just set them over here, and I go, we'll see. And it's very rarely uh, required me to decide whether I'm going to act on that or not. Right? We'll see. So be free, understand, uh, when he's talking about false prophets, he's talking about, uh, false leaders, false guidance. And so here comes the how to pick a church part. All right. I'm going to give you two recommendations going on the two recommendations that come out of this verse. Remember he said sheep, uh, wolves in sheep's clothing who want to devour. And so my first recommendation is you want leaders that connect people more to Jesus than to themselves. That's what I'd be looking for. Is this leader trying to connect me to him or to Jesus? Uh, you want a leader that understands that it's the bridegroom who has the bride, not the pastor. The friend of the bridegroom must decrease. He must increase. Amen? And so that's what you want. You don't want one who's somehow feeding off the church. You want one who sees himself as being there to connect the church to Jesus. And two, you want leaders who model the pursuit of a Sermon on the Mount lifestyle. Again, those eight Beatitudes 
and the, the, the values that go with them and the things that we do to pursue them. That's what you want in a leader. Now, I include in that uh, outwardly impressive leaders. Even if they're outwardly impressive, that's really not the evaluation, is it? God's saying the evaluation is fruit. And that, listen, I'm being as outwardly impressive as I know how to be. I was going to say thank you for not laughing, but <laughs> but at the end of the day, I love guys that are impressive. I love guys that can preach, uh, that can prophesy, that can move a crowd. I love that stuff. But at the end of the day, if I look at their life and I don't see some humility and gentleness and mercy, I don't care. I don't care how accurate they are prophetically. If I don't see the heart of Jesus, I don't want to go to their church. Just me. Because we will know them by their fruit, not by how impressive their gifts are. You know the thing about gifts? God will give, this is wild. Are you ready for this? God will give powerful spiritual gifts to a teenager who's been saved for 10 minutes. How irresponsible is that? You go start thinking that gifts equal maturity, you're going to get fooled. Maturity takes time and experience and walking with Jesus and learning stuff. And maturity is defined by fruit, not by how good you prophesy. Just saying. All right. Was that fun? Let's move on. So, one, know your leaders. Two, <coughs> pardon me, know your community. Uh, again, if we're going to be interacting with other people, we want to know the people that are leading us, and we want to know the people that we're, in, that we're hanging out with that are influencing us because we want to beware of any compromising influence, and people are going to have influence on each other. Let's read Matthew 7, 21 through 23. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. So that to me sounds a little like obedience, yeah? And then listen to this. It says, Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? This is impressive stuff. And then I will declare to them, But I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now that verse should occasionally make us nervous. I'm going to help you out. I'm going to tell you how to understand it so you don't have to be nervous. Here's what's going on here. Very clearly, they were doing two things. They were making outward declarations that were good. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. I love when someone declares Jesus is Lord, but I don't know if Jesus is Lord because they said Jesus is Lord. I'm going to need to see some fruit. Right? They were making outward declarations, and... They were doing Jesus' actions, casting out, prophesying, casting out devils, doing wonders in the name of Jesus. So they were saying the right stuff, and they were doing the right stuff. And Jesus says, I don't know you. Yeah? So let's figure this out. I think the other side of the coin is he says, they weren't doing my will. That speaks of obedience. And I never knew you. That speaks of intimacy, doesn't it? And so 
it's possible we can say the right things and do the right stuff and never be intimate with Jesus, and never actually being obeying him. I love how it says at the end here, uh, I never knew you depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So these are a people who are doing, saying Jesus is Lord and doing good works, but practicing lawlessness. Now, I don't think they were uh, outlaws. I think they were just a law unto themselves. I don't think they were doing bad things. They were just doing whatever they wanted. They just were doing, they were saying Jesus is Lord. I'm doing some stuff, some religious stuff, but at the end of the day, I'm doing what I want. Not what Jesus wants. That's the difference. And so Jesus is looking for people that want to obey and that uh, want intimacy with him. And let's emphasize that second one. So uh, here's a simple way for you to know if you, because, you know, now we're nervous. Well, dang it, do I know him? All right. Well, I love 1 John, he answers that question. 1 John chapter 2, verse 3 and 4. Now by this, we know that we know him. Here we go. It's easy. Quick test. See what we do. Now by this, we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Now it's going to that obedience thing, right? Now, I'm going to say it this way, and I'll, I'll try and develop this. I think it's if we have a desire to keep his commandments, not if we keep his commandments perfectly, because, you know, I know you and you know me, and yeah, right? It's do I have a desire to keep his commandments? Is there, do I actually want to obey him, not just use his name and do the flashy stuff? Do I actually want to obey him? Now, let me remind you of the primary commandment that he has given us, and hopefully I can tie all this together. In John 13, verses 34 through 35, he says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. It's new because the Old Testament was love one another as yourselves. Tony, love people like you love Tony. Uh, this is different. This is Tony love people like I love Tony. Like Jesus loves Tony. Okay, that's harder, right? So he's saying a new commandment, love as I have loved you. This is the commandment he wants us to obey. And by this, all will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. If you learn to love people like I love you, everybody's going to think you've been hanging out with me. Everybody's going to think you're my disciple. You get it? So he's saying that uh, our love for others is an indication. It's not we're proving something. It's not Jesus is going, you got to earn it, man. You got to obey me. You got to prove that you're serious. We're not earning something. We're not proving something. He's saying, if you've been intimate with me, I'll rub off on you and people will be able to tell. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you've been intimate with me, if you've been pursuing intimacy with me, you will love like I love. And people will go, oh, you've been hanging out with Jesus. Right? That's what this is saying. So we're not earning, we're not proving. Obedience is evidence of intimacy. And so ultimately, at the end of the day, the goal is simply 
intimacy. The problem with these people who didn't know him is they didn't pursue intimacy. They just used his name and tried to do some religious stuff. And he says, you never got to know me. So you didn't learn the Sermon on the Mount. You didn't learn about my heart for gentleness and mercy and love. And you, 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 haven't, you can't obey me because you don't even know me. Right? So we want to pursue intimacy so that we know him. So here's the thing. Again, back to how to pick a church. It's not just the pastor. It's no good going to a church with a pastor you like and people that are annoying, right? Because you got you to get along with them too. So know your community. You want a community that pursues intimacy with Jesus and obedience to a Sermon on the Mount lifestyle. And again, not out of obligation, not out of I'm afraid God's going to punish me, but out of love. Because they've been intimate with Jesus, they've experienced his love, and they want to learn to love like that. You want a community like that. Now, I think we've done a pretty good job here. Most of the time, people tell me that they come in here and they feel like people are nice to them and love them. So good, good job. That's the kind of community we want. You want a community that pursues intimacy with Jesus. And I'll, I'll tell you this. I'll be, I'll be, you know, friends or friendly with almost anybody uh, as, you know, Bear in mind, I'm an introvert, so I'll only do it for a little bit. <laughs> and then i got to go home. <laughs> Be alone. How many introverts are out here? I understand. I, you don't want to raise your hands because you're an introvert. It's all right. But I'm going to tell you, I hope this doesn't offend you, uh, but uh, I'm not that pastoral, so I kind of don't care. But uh, um, you will never be in my inner circle if I don't see in you a desire to be intimate with Jesus. I'll be friendly to you. I'll be your friend. But people that are, I'm going to share my heart with, uh, these, are, these are people that I see a pursuit of Jesus in them. I see a desire for intimacy. Most of the people I hang out with are people I've prayed with. Uh, because people who pray uh, want intimacy with Jesus or people I've worshipped with. Right? I'm just saying and I think this is what Jesus is recommending here. When he, I think he's just saying, know your community. You want to hang out with people, you're going to stretch them. Young people, if you aren't married yet, you don't want to marry a project. I know it's tempting, women. I can change him. No, you can't. <laughs> We're really good at faking. We'll act like you can change us until we have you. You want someone who's going to run at the same pace you're running at. You want someone who wants intimacy with Jesus. That's it. That'll save you a lot of trouble in the future. You just heard that. All right. Shall we finish up? There's one part left. Now, we're going to go through this really quickly. Pardon me, because if you recall, I started this at the end uh, on November 26th. I did a sermon called Word Doers. So if you want this more developed, go back and listen to that. It's online. Uh, but I started at the end about being doers of the word and not just hearers. And then we went back and started the Sermon on the Mount. So if you come full circle, we're back at the end. Uh, so I just want to read it. Uh, Therefore, Jesus ends with this statement. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine 
and does them. You might want to highlight that part, does them. Whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rains descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rains descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. I don't want to have a great fall. And so it was, and I love this ending, and so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. The scribes would often quote this teacher or that teacher. Jesus got up and acted like he knew what he was talking about and he wasn't wrong. You know what? He knows what he's talking about and he isn't wrong. Jesus' word is the one truth. So I ended this with one truth, one great truth in all of this. Jesus' word. Jesus' word is true. We, that's why we're a word church. We just keep going back to this book because it is authoritative. Jesus' word is authoritative. He is the one with all authority in heaven and earth. His word is true. And so the point of this final statement is simply this. Life's storms will come to everyone. I said this the other day. I was talking to some pastors, and I said, you know what? I said, my life makes a lot more sense if I think of it in this way. When I think of it in terms of how God wants to bless me, my life can be confusing. When I think of it in terms of how God wants to conform me to the image of Jesus, suddenly my life makes a lot more sense. You with me? Life's storms will come to everyone. Some of them are even sent by God to refine us. The only stability in this world is in doing the Sermon on the Mount. I say that with authority because Jesus just said it. The only true stability in this life, in this world, is in doing the Sermon on the Mount, actually embracing these principles and going, yep, I'm going to love Jesus and I'm going to learn to be like him. And this is counterintuitive. This is not, it doesn't make sense. This is what Jesus was saying in Matthew 16, 25. We've quoted this several times. That whoever loses his life will find it, right? Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will find it. We actually find true resurrection life in Christ, in a Sermon on the Mount lifestyle that calls us to lose our earthly life for our spiritual life. Yeah? Who's in? All right, good. That's most of the hands. Look around. If somebody didn't raise a hand, you can preach at them. Uh, no, just kidding. Don't do that because, you know, you want to try and convince them that you're a church they want to go to. All right. So, 